Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What happens when you combine a thousands-year-old contemplative tradition with exponentially changing technology and an increasingly global and interconnected world? Since 2007, Buddhist Geeks has been striving to come up with answers to this question, and we've only just begun. Over the years, we've recorded hundreds of talks and conversations on the development of Buddhism in the 21st century. These recordings, in the form of our weekly podcast, are downloaded over a million times each year, accounting for several million total downloads. If you've been positively impacted by Buddhist Geeks, we ask that you consider becoming a monthly micro-patron. As little as $2 a month helps us reach important milestones related to the production of the weekly podcast, from scheduling guests to crafting thoughtful questions to recording, editing, and publishing the finished episode. Your support enables us to take the time we need to create something worth listening to. Being a patron is about supporting those things that are most important to you, that you feel have the potential to change the world for the better. Come put your money where your heart is. Patreon.com slash BuddhistGeeks. Hello, everyone. It's wonderful to be here. We've been having a really amazing time at this conference. A little bit of background here. Um, as Vince mentioned, my background is as an engineer. Actually, I started off in robotics. And um, to make a long story short, because there's a lot of stuff in these slides, um, after a really interesting path in robotics, really enjoying myself, but really not feeling a deep level of satisfaction, probably motivated by similar reasons as many others, I ended up on a contemplative path. And after a lot of searching in that space, I not only discovered really a, a path that opened up for me and something that was really working. And I realized that a path like this could really fundamentally transform human experience. But beyond that is sort of a sense of purpose. I saw that actually these contemplative tools, the meditation tools that I was being exposed to across traditions were really human inventions. They were things that we had created. And the types of technologies that I was creating as well were along this same continuum. And so what I saw actually was a connection between two things which I think are not often thought of as going together, particularly in the technology context that we see around us today. But if you ask the question, what is technology? Technology isn't a thing. We are examples of technologies that exist, but actually technology represents a potential of the human mind. Whatever we think, whatever we imagine clearly enough, we can manifest. So the only actual real limit to what technology can do in the world, to how technology can serve us as humans, is limited by our own minds, by our creativity, by what, by what we do. And so the question is, what better use for technology in the service of humanity than the eradication of human suffering? And so that's what my talk will be about. I have sort of a basic argument here. <laughs> the first, enlightenment is real. 
The second, science can quantify it. And the third, technology can facilitate it. These are knowingly some bold points, and this is intentional, um, because I'm trying to uh, really throw everything at you here. So the first point, enlightenment is real. Not to say that enlightenment is one thing. Like we can point to it and say, oh, there, that's enlightenment. Uh, actually, more to say that it represents a space of experience. A space of experience that many people in this audience can speak from right now in this moment. Now, there will be other people in this audience that might disagree with them and say, no, you're wrong, but that's okay. I think, broadly speaking, if we look, for example, here, we have an airplane, we have a bird, we have a helicopter taking off, we have a bee. These are all examples of flight. And we can look at this, these take many, many different forms. But in all of these cases, there's a fundamentally different relationship between the thing and the earth. And in the same sense, I think that we can recognize that there's a fundamental capacity of the human mind to attain a deep and profoundly different relationship with experience, with ourselves and with reality. A fundamental transformation of the sense of self and the sense of separateness, the sense of self and other, and a meaningful and profound reduction in the experience of human suffering. And so I think it's important for us, without needing to label it or define it precisely, just to say, wow, this is possible. So the next step is science can quantify it. And I don't mean that science can say, this is what enlightenment is. What I mean is that science can build a map, a representation, a conceptual model. And that conceptual model is no different than what we're already doing with clinical conditions. So for example, imagine depression. In order to understand what depression is, from a scientific perspective, we look at how it affects the brain, we look at how it affects the body, we look at how it affects the blood chemistry, we look at how it affects behavior and psychology, and it's not static. It's a growing and evolving model. And the better our model, the better we can build this map. But just to be clear, I'm not claiming that, for example, these, uh, these models of the brain, for example, are what enlightenment is. So I don't claim that this is what enlightenment is. This is just a model, a representation of how it appears in the brain. It's a reflection of the experience. And it doesn't mean that you have to say that enlightenment is in the brain. You don't have to take this kind of materialist reductionist perspective. You don't even have to have any perspective at all. All you can say is, hmm, I'm noticing that there's a correlation between experience and what I say here, and that can be useful. And really, that's no different than what has been happening for thousands of years in terms of building a conceptual model. The only difference is that what's, happening, what's been happening for thousands of years is the construction of a conceptual model based on first-person experience, based on how I am experiencing things, and now let me describe it using language, using written word, using books, using text, and using spoken word. Now, the quantitative model is different. It actually uses numbers. It uses different types of devices and tools to measure reality, to measure what's happening, and then to build, in a reproducible way, this quantitative numbers-based understanding. And so this brings me to my next point, which is that technology can facilitate this experience based on this scientific understanding. So what the subjective model is particularly suited to is the development of the meditation tools and techniques that we're very familiar with. That's kind of its special ability. 
Um, but the quantitative model has different special abilities. By having this numerical representation, this quantitative representation, you are in a unique position to build tools and technologies that can then take that information and act on it, okay? So if you can build an accurate enough model, if you can build a clear picture of what's going on in the heart, in the brain, in the blood chemistry, in the DNA, and the increasingly accurate that thing becomes, the more effective you can be at acting on it and building tools and technologies around it. So, for example, our understanding of biological science helped us to build a vaccine that could completely eradicate smallpox from the face of the earth. But the question is, why can't our understanding of contemplative science or meditation research help us to build tools and technologies that can eradicate human suffering from the face of the earth? So, a couple words or language to put around this. So this is sort of the idea of applied contemplative science or applied meditation research, which you could call contemplative engineering. This is a discipline that does not exist, which I think should. Uh, consciousness hacking, uh, which is actually a, a group that I organize in California. Um, and, uh, and so the result of this, here are some other words, contemplative technology, which is a word we're hearing here, transformative technology, which is... a uh, just another name that I've been using. Essential self technologies, which is a name that someone named Linda Stone uses. Calming technology is a term that Nima coined. So these are all different terms used to describe the space of technology that's possible. But the, the cool thing about this is that it's actually already happening. Um, so uh, we can look around us and see all the signs. For example, meditation research is flourishing. It's in universities around the world, and it's commonly accepted as an important and interesting domain. And what that's doing is it's building this map, this quantitative understanding. But beyond that, um, there are a whole realm, a whole space of technologies that are beginning to emerge that also make this possible. And culturally, we're also open to these technologies. Really, the only limit is our own interest, our own ingenuity, our own ability to bring it into the world. So to give you a quick example, many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with Judson Brewer, who's uh, active in the Buddhist geeks community. And he did some really interesting work along with a, a number of other people. Uh, and I'm going to talk about that. This is an fMRI machine. And what this allows you to do is image in three dimensions what's happening inside the brain in real time. So we can put you in this machine. And, and this, is, this is exactly what they did. They can take experienced meditators and they can have them go into particular states. And then they can find the correlates, the reflection of those states in the brain. And they can build some preliminary model. It's not the end-all model that will solve, you know, that will cure the world of suffering, but it's a really interesting first step. But here's how you close the loop. You can then take novice meditators, you can put them inside this machine, and you can show them a, a screen right above them. And that screen is actually a representation of what's happening in the parts of the brain that were identified as relevant to the meditation states achieved by these experienced meditators. And so they can sit there and they can actually have this form of technology-assisted self-awareness. And this is a known phenomenon. It's called neurofeedback. It's well-established. 
for the last 50 or 60 years. And so what happened in this particular case was um, the red is sort of the less desirable experience. The blue is the more desirable experience closer to the goal state. And after the first few trials, the subject noticed, wait a minute, when it's red, that corresponds to me thinking about the breath. And when it's blue, I realize that corresponds to me feeling the breath. And so through this training, you are not just able to teach the person how to change this part of the brain, but because the two are interrelated, you're actually able to teach the person in a short amount of time how to fundamentally change their own experience. There's lots of examples of different types of technologies that can be used to the same end. These are all different types of brain imaging technologies. There are also lots of examples of brain stimulation technologies that can be used to directly stimulate and change how the brain is working. There's also lots of technologies that are both in academia and entering into the consumer marketplace. Robin just talked about one of them that, that allow you to enter into a, a virtual or augmented reality that can be deeply engaging. And the more engaging the experience is, the deeper and, and, and um, more profound ability you have to actually go in and manipulate and change that person's experience. Um, in the consumer marketplace, there's a whole space of technologies that are opening up. These are all wearable technologies, self-tracking technologies. These are all about measuring some aspect of our body, our behavior, our psychology, and then feeding that back to us in some way. And what are these, if not forms of technology-assisted self-awareness that are beginning to emerge? So I want to take this to, to the extreme, right? To the very, very end of what we can imagine, okay? And so... This is like a thought, a thought exercise. We're going to stretch our, uh, our imagination here, okay? Now, um, I want to say uh, a few things about this. First of all, these technologies are not some automatic panacea, right? Technology is dangerous. There's no question about that. You can hurt people with technology. You can even hurt people with technology that you are trying to help them with. Right? So this is not some clear, open path. This is difficult, just like building any other type of intervention. Right? So um, the idea is that through a standard process that, that, that we deeply understand of clinical trials and iteration and learning and building, um, that we can, over time, not create a shortcut. But what we can do is we can continually optimize and optimize and optimize the path to the point where we can make these experiences increasingly accessible. And so this is not some jump over that breaks the laws of physics or something like that, but rather you can imagine this is the end, the final reach of optimization, right? And so imagining this, what are the implications? What does this mean? What's this all about? So first, I don't claim that this is um, the ultimate thing that's going to save the world. I actually personally don't know what the consequences would be if you were all of a sudden make awakening available to a huge number of people in a short amount of time. For all I know, it could produce uh, an incredible, peaceful, utopic society. There could also be a period of, um, of dystopia. There could be a period of adjusting. Anything is possible. So these are things that we really have to think about. But 
what I do think is important, what I do think is possible here, is that I think that there are a couple different perspectives of how we can try to address the issues and problems that we see in the world. There is a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach. And the top-down approach looks at the fires that are burning, the very real fires, the environmental catastrophes, the starvation, the disease, um, the war, the strife, and we can directly address those and try to fix them. But there's a bottom-up approach where we try to look, what are the cause? What's the underlying cause of the fire? What is the root? What is the seed? And this is the approach that I'm proposing here, that we get to the underlying cause which to me seems largely related on this sense of separateness, this fundamental sense of self and other, which seems to be the cause of so much maliciousness, anger, and hatred in the world. And if we can get to that as quickly and efficiently as possible, then we have the chance of really changing the world from the inside out. And there's another fundamental and important thing, which is that human suffering is real. It's ubiquitous and it can be reduced. That is a real potential for human beings. And so I think that these are things worth working for, but it's not the technology alone that's going to do that. Even though um, technology has a very unique place because you can use it without as much language scaffolding around it. Traditional tools are built on language. Language is inescapable. The conceptualization of it is inescapable. It's part of the tool itself. It's how it works. But with technology, if you put something on someone's head and say, try this, there isn't as much language wrapping around it. But nothing is context-free. And I would argue that even more important than this underlying experience that you can make available with the technology is the context that you place around it. The behavioral ethical guidelines, the social structure, the sangha. These are the things that actually probably guide human behavior more than anything else. So I think that these technologies are fundamentally and deeply important. I think that you need to still think about what the context is and how you frame it. It doesn't allow us to escape these questions of ethics and morality and structuring our society in a way that's conducive for positive human life. But I also think that we need to recognize that the emerging space of technology is a space of possibility, a space where we have available to us a profound ability to develop the tools and the capabilities that Eastern practices such as Buddhism have been pointing to for thousands of years. I would even argue that to ignore these things is to go against the Dharma if our real true purpose here is to try to eradicate human suffering. So if there's one thing we take from this, it's just an openness, an acceptance, a realization of the possibilities inherent in technology. Thank you.
After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.